You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on sex positivity and orthodox religions. Our main topic is on calming your emotions. We go over steps from dialectical behavioral therapy to help you learn to overcome overwhelming stress and help sustain your relationships. We close out the show with a question on coming out to your family as a bisexual individual. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vero the Science Collie. So before we get the show started, I want to make a quick disclaimer and apology. I'm in the middle of a blizzard, so if you hear weird noises in the background, people screaming, it's because of the blizzard's eating them. So, you know, beware the Yeti. Um, I'm good, I'm safe, I'm inside, I'm warm. But uh, apologies for any weird noises if you hear them in the background. I swear there's nothing I can do about them. To be honest, Metrico will probably hear less traffic noise, so I think this will be a quieter show. Yeah, you'll hear less traffic noise, but like those snow plows, it sounds like there's a tornado. So if you hear them, just, um, just you know, just be glad you don't have to live here. <laughs> but, you know, speaking of New York, there was actually a recent article that was posted in the New York Post. And it was an interview that this... Um, that they had, uh, that the author had with a Hasidic couple. Now, if you're unfamiliar with like Judaism, like the Hasidic Jews are considered to be like ultra, ultra, ultra Orthodox. Um, we in New York, especially here in Brooklyn, we have a very large community that mostly keep to themselves. They're very, you know, traditional when it comes to their behavior and their lifestyles. Um, most marriages are arranged. You get married when you're 18. You know, there's a distinct separation of sexes. The school buses have two different uh, doors, one on each side, because the girls have to sit on one side and the boys have to sit on the other, and they can't kind of mix. Like, there's, it, it's very traditional, and from the outsiders, it can look very strange. Um I mean, just even their, their costuming, like the way that they dress caught costuming. That sounds like really mean, (laughs) but there was an article in the New York post that talks about a Hasidic couple that have a kinky open marriage and how it could get them shunned forever. And so with Hasidic Judaism, it's strict monogamy. And what they did, they found that open marriage suits them better. Um, the, uh, they changed their names and they're mostly anonymous. So, um, the husband was flirting with, um, a waitress and over time he felt really jealous about it. And so he told his wife who rather than being upset was actually kind of excited. You know, the idea that there is somebody that is really into my husband really kind of turns me on. It's kind of kinky, kind of awesome. And so they decided to explore it. So while they dress in the traditional Hasidic garb and they still keep to most of the customs when it's, you know, bedtime, when the lights are off, when most of the other Hasids are home, they'll dress modern, clean clothes, you know, what you would typically see from somebody that lives in New York and they'll go and they'll have their little trysts and they discover that it actually suits them better because... You know, the husband is into BDSM and a little bit of 
more of the voyeuristic style of sex. He likes to have sex in cars, whereas his wife really doesn't. And she's, you know, more on the bisexual side. And so he can't really satisfy her needs when it comes to everything that she wants in a sexual partner or encounter. And so they're able to kind of mix and match. They have separate play. They come together for three ways, all of that good stuff. They communicate. But the thing is, is that when it comes to, you know, their, their idea of open marriage, they, they even talk about it. We, they don't have jealousy. Um, is something that, you know, the wife says. We never. I'm got not sure to... if I strictly speaking believe that, but I'm sure it's nice for a news piece. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is rather editorial, that statement. Um, you know, she goes on to say that, you know, we never got to date people, so that made it easier for us. It could be because they they, they kind of live in a binary state. They're a child and they're single and then they're 18 and they're married and there's no kind of courtship. They're just one day they wake up and it's, you know, hi, I'm <laughs> so. But I'm not sure. I mean, I, I suppose that's true, but I'm not sure if I still buy the idea that, Oh, you know, the husband you got assigned is hotter than the husband I got assigned. You know, like that's, I feel like that's a human nature unless I'm missing something. I, they, they're kind of almost, I feel like they're almost implying with this statement that like jealousy is a learned behavior. And I totally don't buy that. So I just want to push back against that a little bit from my personal point of view. But I think it's very interesting that the, you know, they present it this way in this, in the article. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't even know, you know, regardless of that, it's, it's, I, I personally think that they do have jealousy and that's a really weird statement, but <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not here to argue against that or to call the, you know, individuals in the articles, you know, filthy, stinky liars. What is it? There might be a bit of PR, right? Because they're trying to put in good PR for openness and polyamory. So when you're trying to preach this to, you know, closed monogamous people saying, oh, we don't have jealousy is kind of a, you know, romanticized notion. Right. But I'm not sure if that's just kind of the same way that in the fandom we say that, you no, know, nobody has mercy of sex. Right. Like, well, I that would doesn't s- exist. <laughs> I would say that there is a danger in this in this statement because it does kind of come off as, oh well, we're better than you, you know. Exactly. We, we don't have jealousy. <laughs> Why would we? There, there is kind of a. I'm not sure I like that tone. You know, there is a kind of like a one-upsmanship that that comes along with any kind of a community. Oh, well, you have a fursuit made by this person. Well, I have a fursuit made by this person. Oh, your bad dragon's only 18 inches. Ugh, mine's 24. Get on my level. You know, there is a certain kind of one-upsmanship. And when it comes to the poly community, I do find, and especially kind of like as this weird outside insider, that when it comes to, oh, well, we didn't go through a jealousy phase. Oh, well, we don't have arguments about that. Oh, well, we just, you know, really click on this and we talk about it. And there's never been a disagreement. These sorts of relationship one-ups, you know, one-ups kind of tend to play out, especially in the poly community. And I can understand why people would want everything to look picture perfect on the outside, especially when you're talking about you know, your poly relationship. I mean, this, the article is titled, you know, their kinky open marriage. So, I mean, obviously they're talking to outsiders, people that think that this is more kink than it is, you know, lifestyle or relationship style or, or, you know, path to happiness, shall we? So 
I can understand why you would say that, but at the same time, there is a danger in that because when you have new people that are introduced to your community, your fandom, whatever it might be, they see these behaviors. Oh, we don't get jealous. And when they do, when they do encounter jealousy, they, they feel less than they should be. They feel worse about themselves. And so they tend to hide it. So it becomes this whole like swallowing the negativity, swallowing the poison in order to appear perfect. And while you might look good on the outside, your insides are twisted, dear. You have to get it out. So I do find that statement to be a little bit dangerous. We don't have jealousy. I, you know, I, I, I would say that that's just a bad statement overall. The point of this article, though, that that's, you know, it's a good point to discuss. So thank you for stopping me there, Vero. <laughs> is, you know, um, the idea that they have to hide this from, you know, their actual community. With uh, Hasidic Jews, they kind of live communally. They only speak Yiddish in the household. Wives, you know, aren't really allowed to show much of any skin. They wear wigs on top of their hair. Like, they, it is it is incredibly strict, the rules of engagement. And so if they were to get caught, uh, well, adultery is illegal under Jewish law, which the community does live under. And offenders, they are punished with banishment from the community. I mean, to talk about like the level of strictness, husbands and wives aren't allowed to touch each other during a woman's menstruation. There's actually a special cleansing that she has to go through. In the red tent, yes. In order to, you know, be able to to go through there, uh, to to have touch again. Um, the couple, they're outwardly religious, but they actually no longer believe in the faith. Um, they're basically atheists. So why would you, if you no longer believe in the faith, still allow yourself to be kind of tied to it? Here's where religious extremism is bad. And it's not just the Hasidic Jews. We're talking about the Mormons. We're talking about the, like, there are some sects of uh, Islam. There are a lot of sects of Hinduism that do this, where if you are not part of the community and you are kicked out, you are persona non grata. You are not allowed to talk to your family. Your family is not allowed to talk to you. You are cut off. They would be shunned forever. So they choose to be part of this insular community, um, which is the phrasing of the article, because uh, they don't want to lose their family. They also want to inspire other Hasidic couples who also have doubts about God in their marriage. Um, they want to lead by example. So here's... My problem kind of with this, they're wanting their cake and they want to eat it too. While I can appreciate the need to keep a family, they have kids, they want their kids to know their grandmama, they don't want there to be hassle there. They're talking about, we want to inspire other Hasidic couples, we hope to lead by example by speaking out and breaking the taboo. We hope that other Hasidic couples will do the same and feel less alone. <laughs> They're speaking under anonymity. They're not revealing their faces. They're basically not speaking out. They're, they're speaking out, sure, and that is a big step. But on the other hand, they're, they're, there's no way for anybody to reach out to them. How, how are they going to get in contact? How are they going to encourage other people to speak out? 
there there's no dynamicism in this. It's just people speaking out under the, you know, cover of night, no names, no faces, you know, big bangs to cover the face. I can appreciate the fact that there is a couple that wants to reach out and say, this is what's happening within our community. We are just one example. There are probably other examples, but nobody can talk about it. I understand that the cultures and the traditions of this community go way, 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 way back. And to me, it just seems a bit disingenuous to say that we're standing up, we're speaking out, we're hoping to inspire. Yeah, I get it. Like, it's, it's, you don't want to be shunned, but at the same time, you're, you're, you're not like allowing that level of vulnerability you know, if you get caught. I mean, for me personally, it's, and maybe I'm just saying this because my relationship with my family is, um, <laughs> what's an appropriate word for this? A uh, terrible, um, it just seems that they could just make a much larger statement if they had the courage to actually speak out in a non-anonymous way. You see this happen with uh, ex-Mormons. Like, there's a massive ex-Mormon community. And I feel if you are not behooven to the faith, you can make a much better statement. That is how change can happen. And yes, this is a culture that is steeped in traditions. I mean, the fact is, is that they recently had to sue the city in order to perform traditional male circumcision, which um, involves the, um, the, the, I forget the actual term, but essentially the guy chopping off the foreskin to suck the head of the kid's deck to get the blood off. Um, this has caused a, a, we'll say an outbreak of herpes within the Hasidic community recently. Um, there's been six reported cases of herpes in children this year alone. Change does not come quickly, and especially to Orthodox religions. And I feel it's important for people who are within those communities to speak out and be pillars. Yes, you will probably be excommunicated. Yes, you will probably lose your family. And yeah, I can understand how like heartbreaking that is. But at the same time, you're leaving a double life. And if you're in a position to where it's safe for you to kind of be out and proud about yourself... I don't know if being in the closet is a good idea. So I, I don't know. Like I have mixed feelings on this couple. It, it's it's I can see on one hand how they're doing something really great by letting everybody know, hey, you know, we're not all crazy. But on the other hand, they come off a little bit too preachy and showy. And look at us, look how great we are. But actually don't look at us, don't show my face. Blurred out blur blurred even more. Because they don't want to lose anything. It's a no-risk venture for them. And that does slightly bother me. Because there are people who do put risk and put themselves out there. And it seems like they're just reaping the rewards without having any form of investment. So. It's an interesting topic. And it's interesting because this is how orthodoxy can kind of warp the minds and the culture that people grew up in. And to them, this is something that's totally natural for them. Growing up in a family, having a big family, having family always around them is more important than being openly honest. 
And I feel bad for them. Because they didn't choose that life, they were born into it. I feel bad for their kids. Because they're being forced to grow up in this way that the parents know is is wrong. And I would feel bad if the kids, you know, kind of came up in any kind of conflict if this couple were to be outed, so to speak. For sure. So I feel bad for them, but at the same time, I feel like they should maybe take a more vocal and public stand within their own community. It won't gain them anything, but at least they'll be honest and open about it. We're going to move on to our main topic, and if you disagree with me, if you think that the article, and I'll include it in the show notes, please read the article for yourself. If you have disagreements with me, if you have further comments, please, you know, hit us up on our contact page. But our main topic this week is about calming your emotions. Now, we've spoken about cognitive behavioral therapy and, you know, um, mindfulness and mindfulness meditation in the past. That was our bonus episode about Steven Universe. And we have an entire episode on cognitive behavioral therapy. And I talk about stoicism all the time as well, which is also based in this just kind of same uh, mental heritage, really. We're going to talk about the intersection of all of these, where men, you know, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy, stoicism, they all meet in a beautiful liminal place. And it is dialectical behavioral therapy. Now, this is used by um, licensed practic- practitioners, practic- practitioners for a variety of reasons, um, For people that might have borderline personality disorders, for people who struggle to control their emotions because they just feel them too strongly, for people that just don't know how to make right decisions for themselves when they're feeling emotional outbursts or upset, it's used for, you know, breaking bad habits even that people have, whether it's, you know, overeating, whether it's. If you're feeling angry, you throw a punch. Dialectical behavioral therapy is all about using mindfulness, like meditation practices, as a core part of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it comes in four different parts. There are four areas that mindful, uh, not mindfulness meditation, that dialectical behavioral therapy focuses on. We're going to go through each point because we feel that when it comes to relationships, it's important that you kind of employ the tactics, if not the actual training. Now, if you feel like this is something that would benefit your, you know, you and your life, I would highly recommend that, you know, once you're done listening, maybe you look up a, an individual who is licensed in the practice of dialectical behavioral therapy. It's it's something that benefits a lot of people. It's steeped in Eastern, you know, meditation tradition. I mean, it's it's good. It's nice. It's 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 something that I find works for a lot of people. So when it comes to these four different parts, the first part that you focus on and learn to kind of develop is just mindfulness. Now, mindfulness we spoke about again in. The, the mindful meditation episode, our bonus episode, which, you know, was, was a lot of fun to record. But the core of, you know, the core tenet of mindfulness is 
you need to focus on the present. You have to be there in the then and now. Like, you are here. You are here. And just being cognizant of, okay, this is what's happening, is good. Because then you can kind of attend to it. You can pay attention to it. Focus on it. By realizing, okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening now. You bring a sense of calmness to yourself, to to your outlook, to your overall composure. And you're able to slow down. Really focus on what's needed to take care of yourself in that moment. So if you're having an argument with, let's say, your your mate, and, well, screw you, this is bullshit, I'm going to leave. In that moment, you can focus on the present. A lot of people would like to kind of go back and say, well, no, you're just saying that you've said that, you know, da-da-da-da-da, you know, this is what happened, that's what happened. People try to find ways to find patterns as to what led to that moment while that moment is happening. And that's not always the best case to make rational decisions. It could be that what both of you need is a little bit of time and space. And so you might in that moment say, okay, well, cool. Okay. If that's what you really want, Let's just kind of take a little bit of time for ourselves. Maybe a day, maybe five minutes, maybe an hour, however long both of us feel we need. And then we can come back together to decide the future of this relationship. You know, in the moment you might be if you if you don't take stock of that moment, you might be a little bit more inclined to be like, yeah, well fuck you too, buddy. And then you've kind of just made you've added an additional hurdle to repairing a broken relationship or a relationship that is under stress. So by slowing down, by taking a breath, by, you know, fuck you, buddy, I'm leaving. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Take a moment to slow yourself down. Focus on what you need to take care of yourself. Remember, in relationships... You know, while it's good to build that partnership and to make decisions for the both of you that, you know, together that you make, whenever arguments are happening, whenever your emotional boundaries, your integrity, whenever anything that affects the core of your individuality is being targeted, you have to take care of yourself because these are areas where compromise should happen rarely. And honestly, it should never happen in the context of an argument. You should never be yelled at to compromise your core values. These are things that must be decided in a calm, rational fashion and should never be done under duress. Absolutely. So slow down. Focus on what you need to do to take care of yourself. Sometimes it's, okay, just go. I'll be fine. I'll be better without you. Sometimes it's, let's take a break. It could be other things. It could be, maybe you lost your job. And you can spend all the time in the world going, well, maybe if I had done this differently or that differently, or maybe if I had said this instead of the other thing. Be in the present. What do you need to do to take care of yourself? How do you currently stand? How long could you survive without a paycheck? 
How can you go about finding a new job? How will this impact your ability to pay bills? If you're in a relationship, how do you tell your mate? How do you kind of relay that information? All of these are important things that you have to slow down and focus on the present in order to do what is needed to take care of yourself. So be mindful of these things. Don't get caught up in past actions. Don't get caught up in hypotheticals. Focus on the present. If you're ever in an upset, irrational perspective, being too focused on the past or getting caught up in hypotheticals is not the solution. And just overall, learn to appreciate the value of using reason and wisdom. So over time, and this is something that I do to myself as well, I take stock of important decisions that I've made when I am calm and, you know, rational and using, you know, reason and wisdom and the advice of other people versus when I am upset and I'm using aggressive, destructive behaviors. And I'm able to say, well, when I was rational and I made this decision, these are the benefits. These were kind of the drawbacks, but like overall, the benefits are mostly, you know, it's mostly all benefit. But when I look at actions or decisions that I've made when I've been upset, when I've been aggressive, it doesn't always end that well. <laughs> so I'm able to appreciate the value of being a reasonable person and not letting my passion rule my rationality. And while that can be a little bit of a weird sort of thing to evaluate, that objectivity, that knowledge that when you are a reasonable person, you make reasonable decisions, over time is going to impact your decision-making skills, your gut instinct skills, your reaction skills. And you'll be able to take a moment and say, yeah, I really want to fuck this kid up, but <laughs> I know that if I take a more reasoned stance on the issue and a better, well-thought-out response, it's not going to end terribly because it hasn't done that in the past yet. You create good patterns of positivity. And by weaving that and acknowledging that, when it comes time for you to make those rash gut instinct, oh crap, it's on, like Final Fantasy battle music, like Final Boss music, and you're freaking out. You're able to make these important decisions better. So appreciate the value there. And something that's important and something that I know that Vero, you talk a lot about is practicing empathy with your future self. Yeah, exactly. And that's the topic that I was going to bring up for just a bit. So this yeah. is and a huge component of mindfulness for me is actually trying not just to focus on how you're feeling right now, but really visualizing kind of your ideal self or the self you want to be, the self you know that you kind of picture when you see yourself attaining your goals. You know, in, in some cases, it's kind of like looking into like uh, the mirror of Eraset or something that in, in Harry Potter that shows you like, you know, you with your parents smiling at you and patting you on the back and telling you you're, you're an awesome, like it's basically, you know, picturing you in a happy, content state and then 
trying to figure out how to get yourself back to that state and actually remembering that you are returning to a state of normalcy and contentedness eventually, that what you're feeling right now is going to pass, that it's temporary, that all feelings eventually resolve, that you're eventually going to return to something more akin to this idealized version of yourself. In some cases, you might even want to just picture your persona and say, you know, eventually I'm going to be more like my persona. I'm going to go back to feeling happy and confident the way I usually depict my persona. I often picture my persona when I'm, when I'm feeling really down because it cheers me up because that's kind of the version of myself that I want to be, right? So practicing empathy with your future self or empathy with your persona, that can actually really help calm you down and get you over an emotional hurdle when you're really struggling. And I, that's something that I definitely uh, do all the time as a kind of last-ditch coping mechanism, but it can often get me out of a pinch. So I thought I'd just pass that along as a tip. But it's also a huge component of things like uh, stoicism and mindfulness to empathize with the future self. And it's actually, you know, something that comes out of nonviolent communication as well, because that builds empathy for others. In order to empathize with others, you also need to be able to empathize with yourself. So um, it's actually really important to be able to do that. So being able to kind of anticipate your future emotions and kind of get yourself back to that state by visualization can be really useful. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's funny because mindfulness is really about your relationship with yourself. It is your inner personal effectivity. It is, it is how you are able to really just make the good decisions and get along with yourself. A lot of people, they have a lot of internalized shame and disgust with past decisions, with past actions and mindfulness kind of, I, I, I won't say that it removes the burden of feeling guilty about making shitty decisions about hurting other people. But it does allow for you to be more at peace with who you are and to make the steps to move away from being a shitty individual or somebody that identifies as a shitty person and, and become somebody that, that you have respect in yourself, that you have a good inner relationship. It's when it comes to practicing empathy with your future self, it's, um, you know, common phrases, you know, this too shall come to pass and these these feelings, these waves of emotion will just be kind of like water off a duck's back. And I hate mixing metaphors like that, but it kind of is how empathy with your future self should be. That no matter your lot, no matter the trials and tribulations, that everything is well with yourself. Because you know that Today is not special. Today sucks, but tomorrow might be. So you're able to kind of build that as sort of a, a good model for yourself. But, you know, it's, it's, it's mindfulness is incredibly important. And so that's, that's one of the pillars of, of dialectical behavioral therapy. The, the, the second one is interpersonal effectiveness. So, we focused on yourself and being mindful of yourself. Now we need to focus on how you relate to other people, how you carve out your, your place in this world. And this mostly deals with friendships, family, romantic interests, things of that nature. The first thing that you need to do is you have to identify your needs in a relationship. And... We've spoken about this in the past. When you identify your needs in a relationship, you're really just building your own integrity. You're creating your emotional boundaries. 
you're setting emotional bandwidth, you're, you're making all of these decisions, your needs, your expectations, your wants, your limits. But you have to do that first. And it's important that you take the time. Again, before you get in a relationship is ideal, but if you are currently in a relationship, it is okay to retool it. You just kind of have to communicate all of this with your partner. So if you're in a relationship and you're, you've realized that you haven't really set your boundaries, your emotional boundaries, your sense of need and want within the relationship, that's a conversation that the two of you are go- or, or however many are in your relationship are going to have to have. And that can be a potential deal breaker for some people, especially if your relationship contains elements that you don't want it to. And those are what your partner finds to be critical or fun. Oh no, it's really fun when we do that. Oh, I'm going to miss that. Oh, I don't know if I can have it without that. You know, it could be drug fueled, like sex marathons. And you're just like, I'm not really looking for that anymore. Could be something as, you know, different as spending more time together. Spending less time together, having more independence. Some relationships, some people don't want relationships to change, especially if they've been established. It's not because they don't want the relationship to change. They don't want you to change because they're comfortable with how the relationship is. And this adjustment can take time and it can be resisted. But it is important, it is important, it is so incredibly important that you enforce it. If this is what you need, and it isn't what the relationship contains, your relationship needs to adjust, or you need to find a new relationship that allows for your needs. Unfortunately, that's how integrity is. Even if you've previously or prior to really kind of setting your integrity, made compromises. You should never really compromise on integrity. Not the way to go. It really isn't. It, it, it ends <laughs> with you just feeling miserable because you know what you want. And it's sad because even if you're making somebody else happy, in the moment you're going to feel maybe a sense of compersion for making a person happy, but mm-hmm. compromising your integrity is really insidious, right? Because it undermines your sense of happiness over time, and there's going to be a sense of regret and the sense of, oh, I really shouldn't have done that. Oh, I really don't feel good about that. And then not feeling good about it is going to stick with you for a long time, and it's really hard to overcome that when you're chipping away at your integrity. And before you know it, mm-hmm. you'll start finding that you're doing things that you don't enjoy or that you don't even like to do, maybe even having risky sex or doing things that, you, that you're completely out of line with who you are as a person, but you do them because you no longer have any self-respect. And that's really what it comes down to is maintaining self-respect can be very difficult when you've been letting yourself down and compromising on your integrity too much. Uh, doing it occasionally in an emergency to maybe to protect or help a mate or something like that is understandable, but you don't want to make a habit of compromising on your integrity because it will have a serious take, take, take a serious toll on your overall emotional health over time. It can also end up being kind of bait and switchy. So let's say that you are polyamorous and you have to compromise your integrity, your needs to be polyamorous in order to get into a relationship with somebody who is monogamous. That that initial compromise can actually be a hole in the ship of the relationship because you might be, I really love you, 
but I, I, I'm a polyamorous person. So that leads people to cheat, to force the monogamous person to maybe compromise. These types of things rarely work out when it's based on compromise. For a monogamous person, the compromise could be, well, I'm okay with you being poly. You know, just, I want to be your primary partner. That compromise can then turn into a bait and switch because, oh, actually, when I said that, I was kidding. Well, now that we're in a relationship, you have to listen to me. It forces people to make decisions that go against their nature. So make sure that you're not compromising your integrity to be in a relationship or to remain in a relationship. The compromises should be rare. And again, under emergency situations, let's say there's... You know, it's, 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 there are, there are circumstances where it is something that I would be on board with. If there's some kind of an issue within the relationship, let's say you and your primary partner are having problems. Maybe you kind of close down the openness of the relationship in order to resolve those issues. There, there are plenty of cases where a momentary compromise leads to long-term benefit. But part of that is, you know, finding effective and healthy ways to deal with others, to deal with your mates, to deal with your friends, to deal with your family, to have your needs met. First thing, you got to respect yourself and you have to respect yourself before you can really respect other people. It's all about love. Love and respect go hand in hand. So if you can't respect yourself, it's difficult to respect other people. So make sure that you have both of those in lock. Then it goes into listening and communication skills. This, in, this includes nonviolent communication. You need to be able to listen, to communicate, and to be nonviolent whenever you're in an argument with your communication skills. Absolutely. Listen to our previous... That, our, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to do a brief summary of that because we have a previous episode that Metro was about to say a nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. But just brief summary. It's basically the idea that um, you don't assign blame or use judgment as a rhetorical um, approach to conflict resolution. So when your goal is to resolve conflict, you don't want to be blaming and you don't want to be judgmental. So you want to focus on being very objective in your description of events that have happened and then describe how you felt in response to those events without assigning blame. And we do that by using these things called I statements. So you'll say something like, I felt, insert emotion here, when maybe five or ten word description of what happened occurred. And that I felt that way because I have a need to whatever you have a need for, or because I was insecure about whatever you're insecure about. So you have to really own your emotions and explain, you know, figure out, do some self-reflection, figure out why are you feeling how you're feeling? What's the trigger for the emotion? What's the root cause of the emotion? What are you afraid of happening? What are you... What do you feel like you're not getting right now? What do you feel? What are you afraid of losing? So all of those types of things. Very honestly and openly approach someone and explain those things. And when you do that, and you actually can use vulnerability as a tool to resolve conflict and to have both of your needs met without even needing to compromise, because you're both being so radically honest with each other about how you're feeling and what is occurring for each of you. You're kind of giving each other the the, the real truth. The, the truth that you're living right now, and you're explaining that to each other. And that's a really powerful tool for conflict resolution. And it's just basically codified as this extremely useful tool invented by Marshall Rosenberg called Nonviolent Communication. And we have a whole episode devoted to it, which you should check out. 
I'm going to mention it again in a little bit as well. He has another related book called Getting Past the Pain Between Us, which is a book about apologizing and not how to, how to apologize nonviolently. Which you might think, how the hell would you apologize violently? Well, you'd be surprised. Most apologies are, in fact, quite violent. So check that book out as well. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a really important point when it comes to repairing relationships. You know, when it comes to any kind of argument that you have, not every argument is going to be a deal breaker. It's not going to be a relationship ender. You didn't do the dishes. Oh, well, I thought it was your turn. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, that's not going to end the relationship, probably. It's an argument. Decatastrophize. Don't think that it's the end just because you're not getting along in the moment. Every couple has arguments. Every couple has conflict. Again, the fact that you might look at your friends and say, oh, wow, their relationship is perfect. You're only, again, seeing the highlight reels. You're just seeing the Facebook feed. You're not seeing the, you know, honey, get out of bed. Your feet stink. You need to, like, go take a shower. I can't just go. Just do it. <laughs> You're not seeing the warts and the scars and the scabs of the relationship. Because most people don't want those to be on display. It's important for a lot of people to stand by their mate, especially in public, especially when it comes to the way that their friends see them. They can have disagreements. You can have arguments with your partner, but you need to move past them. You need to find ways to make them, you know, I don't want to say better, but you need to resolve them. You know, when it comes to like nonviolent apologies, you know, one of one of the more common ones that I see uh, when it comes to violent apologies, perhaps, is something that's really passive aggressive or something that really puts the blame on somebody else. Like, yeah, you know, even though it's all your fault, even though you did this, reminding them of everything that they did wrong. So, yes, even though you cheated on me, you sucked 20 dicks in a row on your way to the car this morning, you lied about everything, you took money out of our checking account, I still love you and I forgive you. That doesn't really sound that great or sincere. It doesn't really sound validating in terms of the relationship. It kind of makes it feel that the relationship itself is slightly less stable than it actually is. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg, uh, I actually have not read the uh, Getting Past the Pain Between Us book. Um, which is a bit of a shame. It's on my to-read list as I'm currently going over a few more. But um, you want to have you've read it like several times, right, Vero? I have, and it's really a great book. But what it really talks about is this idea that when you're apologizing, you want to keep the focus on the present and not on the past, and that's actually the key the key point of the book. And really, it's the idea that we only ever want to look to the past as a way of learning from it, and not to re-experience the emotions of trauma that we've experienced. So let's say that someone's hurt us, and when we're trying to can't kind of get past that pain, you don't want to relive that pain. That's going to actually keep you from healing from it. It's going to be, it's going to reopen the wound. So when you're doing conflict resolution with someone, you don't want to go through every little thing you experienced at the time that you were hurt because laying that all out in front of the person is going to make them feel like garbage and it's not going to help anyone. So keep, like I said before, keep that description of the thing that you're objectively describing very short. When you cheated on me, when you forgot to take the trash out, when you went to the con and slept with my ex without telling me, Whatever. You don't have to go into the gory detail of everything that happened. Just allude to whatever the incident was. You don't have to go into detail. Keeping the detail out of it is actually 
going to help you resolve conflict. It sounds really weird to say, oh, but don't I need to get acknowledgement and resolution for every little thing that bothered me? No, no, you don't. That's not going to help. What you want is to just get the emotional experience of forgiveness and compassion from that person. And once you're both being compassionate towards each other, it's going to be really easy to forgive each other for everything that's happened. So what you're actually trying to do is just reestablish an empathetic connection with that person. And that's really what you're trying to do with conflict resolution. So don't go over the gory details of everything they did to hurt you. Just allude to it in very broad terms, five to 10 words, when you're making an I statement, expressing how you're feeling, and then work from there in terms of making amends and moving forward together in a new, uh, new connection that you're forging past that uh, reconciliation. So when you're trying to reconcile with someone, when you're going through conflict resolution, do not list out every little thing that happened in the past that bothered you, because that's just going to keep you mired in that past mistake. Yeah, you know, empathy with interpersonal effectiveness is is so essential. And we we, we I know we spoke about this in our, you know, resolving conflicts at conventions episode, but you have to have that empathy and you have to reestablish that empathetic connection in order to really come to common ground kind of reminds me of like Pacific rim where you have to be in full sync in order to completely drift and control the mech. That is in this metaphor, I suppose your relationship. (laughs) So you have to have that link. You have to have that bond. And if you're just going over the gory details, that that bond is just severed more and more. It's a scalpel, and you're just tearing away at it piece by piece by piece. It's easier to heal something that is still present, that is still linked, no matter how damaged. It's more difficult if it's completely severed. It takes more effort. So don't go full, like, unempathetic asshole you might be right but you're still a fucking asshole so don't go that route and and one thing that i will note about interpersonal effectiveness overall learning to say no is a really good tool when it comes to building integrity being able to say no and learning to say no and be firm about saying no is going to do you wonders in a relationship especially when you're going through that post limerence now we're in a new relationship energy phase it can be difficult to say no because oh you want to make everybody feel good you want everybody to feel appreciated everybody should you know everything's good why would i say no to that it's not anything major learning to say no especially when it comes to things that are really important to you that you don't want to have happen is a tool that is going to maintain your own personal boundaries and reinforce the boundaries of the relationship. And just because it's early on in the relationship doesn't mean that you don't say no. Reinforce the boundaries early on, as soon as it starts. Otherwise, it's going to be more difficult to reinforce them or to enforce them at all while the, you know, at a later stage of this relationship. So just say no. Just, just say no. It's okay. You can say yes to other things. You don't have to say no to everything. But if it's something important to you, don't agree to it. Especially if it makes you feel highly uncomfortable and it compromises your integrity. I would say, though, and this is kind of, you know, something that I struggle with. Just because something makes me feel uncomfortable doesn't mean that it compromises my integrity. So sometimes you do have to qualify the no. No, I'm not comfortable with that right now. 
is just as effective as no, I don't want that. Qualify why you're seeing no, especially in a relationship. If it's something important to you, they'll understand. If they don't understand, maybe it's not the right relationship for you. So that's the second pillar. The third pillar is distress tolerance. This is really where like the stoicism aspect kind of comes into play. Distress tolerance is learning how to get through difficult, emotionally charged episodes. It's learning how to control yourself when you're upset, to find healthy ways to calm yourself down when you are just a ball of seething, white-hot rage. Some people, the healthy ways that they find to calm themselves is they go to the gym and they just lift weights until their body is so tired and they're just so filled with endorphins that they're calm. They find their zen in the gym. Some people take a time out. They, okay, to our corners. We're going to, I'll be in the bedroom. You stay in the living room. And in 10 minutes, we'll reconvene round two. But hopefully this time we're not going to be yelling at each other. A good way to do it is to focus on sensation and perception. Focus on how you feel. Focus on what you see. Sometimes by identifying those things, it helps to kind of take you out of the situation. I find moments of levity, especially if I'm in an argument with somebody, and they do something that's, you know, out of rage that's really stupid. And it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. By focusing on that, it really kind of helps me. Um, there's a scene in Star Trek uh, First Contact where Captain Picard is really angry. He's talking about, well, I'm going to fucking do this, and, blah, and just angry about everything. And in his rage, he smashes a model of the Enterprise. And the person that he's yelling at just kind of looks at him and goes, you broke your ship. And that pulls him out of that moment of being angry. By focusing on small moments like that, by focusing on, look, look what you just did. It can make people feel, oh crap, I'm being an emotion, like an overly emotional prick right now. Okay, we need to be a little bit more reasonable. We need to be a little bit more rational. You can also go on like how you look, how you see things. What are the optics of the situation? Some people, <laughs> I think I told this story actually. Um, my mother back when I was a young teenager, I think 13 at the time, took me to a Walmart because she wanted to have a discussion about our, well, not our, but my relationship with God, as she put it, because I was not really feeling that relationship with Jesus um, at all. And so she's like, well, you know, I heard through the grapevine that you're feeling like you're an agnostic or an atheist. And I just wanted to have this conversation with you. And I'm looking around, we're like in the lingerie section of the Walmart walking by. And I'm just like, why are we doing this at Walmart? She's like, well, you know, I wanted it to be in a public place. That way, you know, I wouldn't cause a scene. I wouldn't yell. We could have a rational discussion. And I'm just like, mom, it's a Walmart. If you think that this is going to be like, 
if you think that I'm afraid of causing a scene at a Walmart, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have another thing coming. Like, take me to a fancy restaurant, maybe. Not, I mean, that woman isn't wearing pants. Like, I'm, <laughs> so, you know, sensation, perception, optics, the way that you feel, the way that you see things, the way that other people might see these things. By taking yourself out of the situation, it can kind of free yourself of being emotionally charged. Uh, it's kind of looking outward. Um, stoicism also kind of focuses on looking inward by, you know, kind of closing yourself off a little bit by, okay, I'm feeling angry. I'm going to kind of shut my eyes for a second. I'm going to kind of zen out. Maybe it's listening to music, depriving yourself of whatever, you know, if there's an argument going on by listening to something else, by essentially depriving yourself of the, the whatever is making you feel emotionally charged that can really help in turning yourself inward to allow you to take that moment, the, those breaths, that time to get over the initial emotional knee-jerk reaction. Those moments are really important. And, and these things can differ. What Some people, they find that by closing their eyes and taking some deep breaths, that's enough for them. For some people, they need to put on their headphones and listen to baby metal or whatever your favorite band is. Some people I know go swimming because they can kind of float and close their eyes and you can't really see anything. You can't really hear anything. You're able to remove yourself entirely. And when you're all alone, you're just left with yourself and it allows for you to work through those initial emotions. There are ways that you can use your environment to your advantage and there are ways that you can use your own bodily senses to your advantage. So find what works for you. Find ways that you can remove yourself from the situation for just a moment. Emotional, being emotionally charged, it's a feedback loop. You're angry and you're angry because you feel angry. And so that anger feeds the anger. It's an Ouroboros. It just eats itself and it never ends. Even just a moment, like a momentary moment, like a second or two will break that cycle. And it lets Absolutely. you wind down. So it doesn't need to be, I'm going to go soak in the tub for two hours. And when I come out, we're going to be fine. It might be the case for you. And if it is work, it might be, Oh, look, you broke your ship, Captain Picard. And that moment is all it takes. Could be laughing at something. Maybe your mate, when they got angry, they slammed the table and there was like a fork that clattered on the floor. And both of you look at it and start laughing because it's that moment. It's that pause. It's that break that breaks the cycle. These are good things to calm you down because when you're calmer, you're less likely to make emotionally charged and potentially destructive decisions. 
Things like, I'm fucking leaving you. I'm done. You know, I, I'm, it could be, I'm, some cases, physical violence. It could be emotional violence. It could be sexual violence. These are things you want to avoid. And these are things that tend to happen when you are emotionally charged. I'm not saying put yourself in a neutral state. Saying maybe just a little bit less anger, a little bit more reason, a little bit more control, a little bit less reckless abandonment. Take time to focus on these things. Take time to identify ways that you were able to break yourself out, to calm yourself down when you were stuck in that just emotionally charged prison. You have the key. It's just about identifying what it is for you. And everybody's different. And that's the beautiful thing about it. One of the things that I would recommend is, you know, I spoke about hypothetical situations earlier. Game out situations that sometimes happen. You know, common situations. Things like losing a job. If you're in a relationship, how do you handle yourself if you cheat? If your partner cheats? Game out those situations. Yeah, another few that I would offer that I think this is very important. We actually talked about this a lot at our panel that we gave at uh, Vancouver, which was this past weekend. The panel went very well, by the way. We had really great engagement and things were wonderful. But we talked a lot. We had a lot of questions that ended up bringing up this issue of uh, gaming out relationship issues. And another one that comes up a lot is when you're opening up a relationship, the issue of a partner falling in love with someone else. That one comes up very often. Or the issue of, uh, you know, developing feelings for someone you're not supposed to develop feelings for, like someone's ex. Um, you know, just talking about what happens when we have these problems. What if I fall for somebody that you have been with before? What if I fall for our, you know, unicorn who we take as a third every weekend? You know, what if I fall for, you know, so-and-so? That's actually another important thing to game out uh, with a partner, especially. And that can actually yourself a lot of stress. Because if you're terrified of your partner meeting somebody actually having a discussion of, hey, what happens to us if you meet somebody? That can be a really powerful conversation to have with a partner, even though it's super scary. Absolutely. You know, gaming out these situations, they almost... <laughs> it's, it's within, like, military procedure, you have a standard operating procedure, SOP. And those are for... And these are things that you game out. Situations in the future that might happen when... Let's say you are not, you know, able to receive immediate commands. There are things that you can immediately snap to. In case of fire, do this. In case of this, do that. Hey, there's a snowplow. Um, you know, in cases like that, it's important that you, in, in your life in general, have a standard operating procedure. In case of an abusive partner, do this. In the case of jealousy... Do that. Game it out. Game it out. Game it out. Your game is going to change for every relationship that you have. It's going to be subjective. But in matters of integrity, it's going to pretty much be the same. If my partner cheats on me, we're done. That's that's the standard operating procedure. That, that's an example. Um Generally, there's like a lot of conversation on my end. Like, if my partner cheats on me, we're going to have a discussion and it's going to be fun. Mostly for me, because I turn into Encyclopedia Brown and I'm just like, what happened? Why did you do this? 
how can you do this? You know, that sort of thing. But game those situations out. It's going to be different for everybody, and they might vary on the situation and the relationship. But it goes hand in hand with decatastrophizing things, because you want to ensure that you're not throwing yourself under the bus. You're not throwing anybody under the bus. But definitely don't throw yourself. Don't handicap yourself when it comes to responding to emotional you know, outbursts as they are, or situations that can cause just a font of just emotional bullshit. Part of that is, you know, by gaming situations out, you can avoid problematic behaviors that, you know, make the situation worse. It's some people when there's an escalation within, you know, an argument. Somebody starts yelling. A problematic behavior is, well, first off, yelling. Arguments, you really should try to avoid yelling. It is highly aggressive. It kind of goes against the idea of a nonviolent, you know, confrontation, discussion. Avoid problematic behaviors when it comes to these sorts of things. Gaming situations out, you're able to be like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Game time. If you escalate an argument with problematic behaviors, um, let's say that you're married and you're having an argument with your spouse. And over the course of the argument, you just get so fed up, you take off your wedding ring and you just slam it on the table and walk out. That's a problematic behavior that makes the situation worse. Congratulations. You've, you've, you're that we're, we're, we're on a roll now. People tend to react to that. Maybe your spouse starts crying. Maybe you feel bad, but you can't talk about it then because, well, shit, I just did this and I can't apologize. So the situation escalates and escalates and escalates and escalates. And finally it falls off the side of a cliff. So you have to, if you feel that you're going to do something that is problematic, that is stupid, that isn't going to help by gaming, you know, game the situation out in advance. Learn how to respond and learn how you might react and reflect on past instances that you might have had to try to game out well in the future. Here's what I should probably do. You have to accept reality as it is, though. Here's the deal when it comes to reality itself. If you're avoiding a problem, if there is a problem and you are avoiding discussing it or avoiding looking at it, hearing it, taste, interacting with it, avoiding problems is not the same thing as never or not being hurt. If you refuse to acknowledge that your partner is hurting you, that doesn't mean that everything's fine. They're still hurting you. Acknowledge it. If you bury pain, it's not the same thing as healing. Just because, you know, it's, it's, it's things like this, they're like cancer. If you ignore cancer, it doesn't mean that you don't have cancer. <laughs> you still have it, buddy, and it's not looking good. You have to acknowledge and address issues, problems, pain, problem areas in order to repair them, to heal from them, to get to a good 
central point back within the relationship and back within yourself. And this is something that we often talk about, especially when it comes to reality, the perception of reality. Your feelings are oftentimes not accurate reflections of how reality is. We as little flesh bags are incredibly subjective. And reality is framed by our experiences, by our present emotions, by our past emotions, by the patterns that we have created. Our feelings do not accurately reflect reality in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to arguments. Somebody might, your, your, your friend might say something and you misinterpret it. And oh my god, it's escalation time. How dare you insult me like that? I am very upset. When instead they were just saying, oh, I really like your shoes. Feelings need to be analyzed. If you're feeling angry, if you're feeling upset, you have to identify them and you have to accept them. You know, kind words, they're not always kind when they're spoken. And that's something that is important to kind of understand. When it comes to reality, if somebody is being harsh, if somebody is being brutally honest with you and you feel hurt, you have to accept that that is a certain kind of kindness. Because the, just because of the fact that we view reality in such a subjective way, that somebody that is being real and upfront and honest with you it may not feel nice, but it is the truest kindness that somebody can pay to you. Don't get angry with somebody that's honest. It just inspires dishonesty. Write out that anger. And this is the fourth pillar, emotion regulation. Write out that anger. Accept them for what, for what it is. Accept that anger. Accept that shame, accept the jealousy, write out these strong emotions and accept them. If you're angry, identify why you're angry. If you're jealous, identify why. Envious, shameful. Figure out why you feel the way that you feel. And understand that identification does not equate to resolution. Just because you identify why you're angry doesn't mean that there is an immediate solution. Just because you realize, oh, I'm jealous because of this, you may not be able to resolve that right now. And you have to be okay with that. You have to accept that. I feel jealous now. And there's nothing I can do about it. So why should I beat myself up about this? Why should I bring other people into my carousel of pain. Uh, I can't do anything about it. So should I continue to boil myself in the, 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 the water of jealousy and anger? Or should I just accept that I feel this way and go on with my life? And then when I can address this, I address it. That is a much healthier way of living. If you cannot do anything in the moment to resolve a situation, don't beat yourself up over it. Don't feel bad about it. Accept it. 
find, okay, well, I'm jealous because my mate is off visiting his other partner and he won't be back for a week and there's nothing I can do about it now. I can't really talk about it with him now. So am I just going to sit on this couch and just shit my pants with anger and jealousy for a week? Or am I going to keep living my life and try to find some positive things? And then when he gets back, we can address this. Much healthier, much more sustainable, much less of a violation of integrity, and much less destructive. When you recognize your emotional triggers, when you recognize why you feel the way you feel and what caused you to feel that way, you then begin to decrease the intensity of these negative emotions. Now, that's not because you avoid the situations, but it's because you have a rational, objective understanding. When you visit your other mate, I feel jealous. And over time, as you address that jealousy, whether it's through reassurance of value, re-eval- you know, reassurance of worth, I appreciate this relationship, I value this relationship that I have with you, over time, the intensity decreases and decreases and decreases. It will probably never go away. But it will get to a point where you don't necessarily need that reassurance. You might still want it, and hey, it's always nice to hear that you're loved and valued. But it decreases in intensity. And it's okay. It's okay to feel whatever you feel. Even if it's bad. Even if it's a negative emotion. It's okay. You're good. You're still fine. You don't have to beat yourself up because you're feeling jealous or angry or sad or bitter or lonely. It's okay. Emotions are emotions. Feelings aren't real. And it's okay to feel whatever you feel. How you react and respond to those emotions, what you choose to do, that determines your morality and integrity. Not your emotions. Emotions are true neutral. Everybody feels them. Everybody has them. What you determine to do when you feel those emotions establishes who you are as a person. It establishes your character, your integrity, your malady, your, your morality, your self-worth. It's like, it's like a gun. Just because you have a gun doesn't mean that you're going to shoot somebody. It doesn't make sense for you to beat yourself up because you feel angry or jealous and nobody should beat yourself beat you up for it. There are no thought crimes. You might feel a certain way, you might think a certain thing. You might you can't be blamed for having these. Again, I'm a little bit fortunate in this to to have lesser of an emotional range, but at the same time, people can't beat me up if I get angry over something. It's irrational, but here's the deal. Emotions are irrational. You are not in control of them. They are the ebb and flow of the ocean. You can't you can't do anything to control it. You can't determine the course of a hurricane. So don't get mad when it targets your home city. You can't make yourself feel any less jealous or angry or upset. You can regulate it, yes. You can make yourself feel you know heal from it, yes. But you can't be blamed for it, and you shouldn't be blamed for it, and you shouldn't 
feel like you've committed a heinous atrocity for feeling upset. It's not healthy. Because again, it goes back to being upset with somebody that's honest. If somebody expresses to you, when you visited your other mates, I felt a little bit jealous. If your response is, well, you're being an idiot, you encourage dishonesty. You sow the seeds of deception and doubt and mistrust in your relationship. And that is the beginning of the end if you do not address it. There are no thought crimes. Expressing your feelings is not a problem. How you react to them, how you respond to them. If you go on a destructive path, that's that's how that's your character, that's you. If you discuss them nonviolently, that's you. Dialectical behavioral therapy is about calming your emotions and responding to them in a way that follows the path of least resistance. It is about making everybody feel that they are on equal footing and not being hurt. If you struggle with your responses, this is a val- this is a great way for you to learn how to control your responses to emotional triggers and how to communicate them to other people. I find it to be of high, immense value. And it's something that I am a proponent of. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, one part of this, and I think maybe before even seeking help or even looking into dialectal behavioral therapy or whatever it might be, one thing that I find really key and something that I often struggle with, struggle with myself and have struggled with in the past, and it was a huge barrier to me seeking to kind of get better at my own emotional regulation skills was this idea that, you know, it's, you know, the emotions I'm feeling, I shouldn't be feeling because maybe I'm polyamorous. So I shouldn't be feeling jealous or I'm, I'm polyamorous. So I shouldn't be feeling envious or, you know, it's wrong for me to feel a fear of missing out because I've actually, you know, I'm a pretty, I'm actually pretty privileged and I've experienced a lot of things or, you know, all these things, you shame yourself for having certain feelings. And it's really important to nip that shame in the bud before you can address any of your emotions or really calm any of them. Because truly, it's almost impossible to calm your emotional state while you're in the process of denying its existence. You can't really resolve an emotion until you fully experience it. And it's really hard to experience an emotion you're running from or trying to avoid or telling yourself you shouldn't be feeling and therefore try to pretend you aren't feeling. So you need to feel the shit out of your feelings, to borrow a phrase from Dan Savage before you can resolve them. So feel the shit out of your feelings, acknowledge what they are, put it into words. One thing I find super helpful is putting your feelings into words, saying, you know, I'm feeling, and then describe that emotion. You know, I'm feeling this really gross sort of crawling disgust in my stomach and it makes me want to puke and I feel really hot and angry and just disgusted and sad and it's all this jealous, right? Describe that emotion to yourself. When you do that, you realize you actually kind of start taking power over it because you're moving your brain's control of all those feelings from, you know, the amygdala into your frontal cortex. You're now going from being that emotional lizard brain driven person to being a frontal cortex driven rational individual, which is kind of what you want, right? So putting those things into words is so, so helpful. And then once you've done that, you can kind of, again, empathize with yourself and don't be judgmental. So it's okay to feel whatever it is that you feel, even bad emotions, right? 
Absolutely. It's how you react and respond to your emotions. What you choose to do that determines your morality and your integrity and not the emotions that you have. So I could feel like a jealous. I could feel angry. What determines if my anger is bad or not is not that I'm feeling angry. Let's say that my pet Marcus uh, drops my favorite mug and it shatters on the floor, right? I'm going to feel super angry. I will because it's my favorite mug, right? But I could react to that in a few different ways. One thing I could do is to pick up the mug and club Marcus with the broken mug until he's a bloody pulp. Now, if I do that, I would argue that that's probably uh, immoral. I actually kind of like Marcus, though, so I'm probably not going to murder him. But, you know, I could also choose to yell at him. That wouldn't be the best. But the best thing I could probably do is say, hey, Marcus, I'm really angry that you broke my favorite mug. Would it be possible for you to look for a replacement so that I don't feel like I've lost out on this mug that was very meaningful to me, right? Would that be something you'd be willing to do? So that would be a nonviolent approach to the situation. And if that's my response to my anger, I'm still feeling the same anger, but I'm acknowledging it, I'm naming it, and I'm expressing it in a nonviolent way to the person who's angered me. And that then allows me to resolve and move past the conflict, right? So that's what I mean. If I, if, if I refuse to acknowledge to myself that I was angry, I might end up just stuffing that down the memory hole and then eventually lashing out at Marcus for some unrelated thing he does to pierce me off later because I never actually addressed the conflict with him, right? Because I was too afraid of admitting to myself that I was angry. That is the problem. So you don't want to do that to yourself. It's okay to be angry. Just make sure that when you express that anger, you do it in a nonviolent way and not in a violent way, right? You know, when you don't express your negative emotions, your anger, your jealousy, whatever it might be, especially in the context of a relationship, you're just planting landmines. Exactly. And, and it's important to remember that there are no thought crimes, right? You can't have a thought crime. Like you, you might be angry and really pissed off at a partner and imagine murdering them and whatever, but like you're not going to do those things. It's okay to say, hey, I'm so angry at you. I was, you know, I was like, I was picturing like doing horrible things to you last night, but I realized that the reason I'm angry is this. And then you have that conversation, right? It's okay to have those thoughts. Just don't act on them. Yeah, please don't act on them. You know, <laughs> find positive, healing, helpful ways that are useful and heartful for all to channel these emotions into something that is a net gain. When you act in a destructive, violent, angry, you know, whenever you react in a way that is negative and harms more than it heals, you're not being truly ethical. And so it's important that you establish who you want to be as a person. Do you want to be somebody that people know will be there? That people that, that, you know, I will always love you. I will always be there for you. We will work through arguments. If that's what you want to be and you're not there yet, work on getting there. And this is a good method. It's not for everybody, of course. But this is a good method, especially for people that struggle with emotional control. It's okay to feel things. It's everybody does. But learning how to channel and react to those emotions is bar none. One of the most essential things that you can do as an individual. Calm your emotions and you will be a rational, more loving person. We're going to move on to our question for the week. Our questioner wrote to us and asked how to come out being a bisexual furry at home. They ask, you know, their question states, So I've met this furry online with who things get really caught up in. Um, they both really deeply love each other. Uh, but while his family is more accepting towards their son being attracted to both genders, it's not the same here. Uh, my family... 
You know, my parents started to despise the fandom ever since I got busted with my previous partner, also a furry. Although my boyfriend offered me his presence when I decide to come out to my parents, I'm afraid it won't do much good in this situation. Um, you know, telling my parents I'm bisexual and a furry, and also then introducing them to my partner. Uh, since he lives in the country that I want to move to anyway, I'm afraid they would do anything in their power to stop me from moving. Is there any suggestion as to what I should do? Um, so I know that we had, you know, an entire episode about talking, like coming out to your family, especially like around holiday time, how to disclose your membership or, um, activity within the fandom, how to establish like, Hey, mom and dad, this is my boyfriend and my girlfriend, you know, anything of that nature. It's one thing that I would say is that you need to kind of establish like you know, how old are you? How dependent upon your parents are you? Are you going to put yourself in one, take yourself from one dependent situation to another dependent relationship? You know, what are you moving to? How independent are you? How much do you rely on your parents to meet your everyday needs? Because the last thing you want to do is remove yourself from that situation, from being dependent upon your parents and make yourself dependent upon you know, while they might be your boyfriend, but dependent upon, you know, your mate, because that is not really a healthy choice and it's going to breed discontent and that relationship typically will not be stable or healthy for either one of you. Yeah, I think this is one of those cases where, you know, Dan Savage talks about the idea that with the It Gets Better project that there's a time and place to come out, right? And when you're still financially dependent or you're dependent on someone for housing or food or shelter or education or any of these basic, you know, Maslow's hierarchy type needs of life, that's not really the time to come out in a way that's going to potentially um, remove you from being able to, you know, live a healthy, happy life, right? So you want to make sure you're being safe in that way. Uh, it's it's okay to, you know, if you know you have partners willing to support you and all of that, and you, you know, you can make a leap where if you know your parents do react negatively or your family reacts negatively, that you do have a place to go. That's maybe a good thing, but do keep in mind that relationships can go south, and that parents are a much more durable connection than a relationship partner. So you you know, where you're just, your partner could end up dumping you and leaving you on the street, your parents are less likely to do that. And for your own safety and thinking that through, you might want to wait until you are not so dependent on anyone before making that leap of not being dependent on your parents or your family. I think that for your own safety is what I would recommend because I do have to look out for your safety, not just your own fun in this particular case, yeah. unfortunately. However, you know, I, and I, I'm someone who's totally all about transparency. It's like my favorite thing. I want to tell everybody I, I care about everything about me so that they can love me for exactly who I am. And I totally get you probably are craving that with your family and you'd love to be out and proud. But again, if they're not really maybe able to hear that or receptive to that, you might not want to be coming out to them yet just yet. One thing you can do, though, is try to maybe gradually expose them to more things, more materials that might make them more accepting of bisexuality or uh, non-traditional lifestyles. So maybe you find some films, you know, for a movie night, you say, hey, why don't we watch this movie that has bisexual characters in it? Or, hey, why don't we check out an episode of Queer as Folk or something, right? You just kind of start exposing them to things and see if they can start developing empathy for those types of people by maybe empathizing with a character in fiction that they enjoy. 
And then by doing that, you're actually laying the groundwork for your eventual coming out. So you can feel like you're still making forward progress with your family without actually exposing yourself to harm. And that might be enough to make you feel like you're still doing something, like you're still not just betraying that identity in yourself, while also not exposing yourself to that much risk. So that might be something you could try as well. One thing that I will say is that you do mention that your uh, mate lives in another country. Granted, it's a country that you would want to move to. Um, you want to make sure that you are actually able to move there and reside there for, you know, however long you want your residency. Um, it's a little bit easier in certain uh, regions. Let's say that you're in a Schengen country, for example. However, some cases that's not going to be as simple. So if you don't have an established amount of money, if you don't have a job lined up, things like that, it might be more difficult for you to maintain long-term residency. So you kind of want to make sure you have all of your ducks in a row. I would say, you know, having your boyfriend there, um, when you do come out, that is a smart move. It does have that, you know, this is somebody I want to introduce you to. It adds a, it's a little bit of a security blanket in a lot of cases. Um, this is a case where I would highly recommend that you do this in a public area, perhaps, especially if your parents might react in a highly negative way. Maybe you do this at a restaurant, maybe like, Hey, let's go out for dinner. Oh, Hey, and this is my boyfriend and just kind of see what happens because public reactions tend to be a little bit more measured. Um, especially if you are worried about their reaction, I don't necessarily know if it's as important to kind of double, triple whammy them with, Hey, this is my boyfriend. Oh, I'm moving out of the country to live with him. Oh, and also, um, this is my first Sona. Um, I feel like there might be one too many things there. So I would suggest that you kind of game out the situation. You kind of edit what you might tell them. Fandom interests, interests in general, they may not be as essential to communicate. If it's something that you want your parents involved in, I would recommend giving them one thing at a time. This is my boyfriend. Then once they're accustomed to that, okay, well, I want to move to live with them. Then maybe once they're accustomed to you living out of the country, like, oh, hey, and this is something that I'm involved in. A lot of people, especially makers, if you are an artist, if you write, if you are a fursuit maker, there is a lot of like, hey, mom and dad, this is something that I do, and this is how I make my living. There's some valuation put there. But for just interests, like, you go to a convention a year and you have some artwork that you've commissioned that may not necessarily be something that you have to clue your parents and you could just say like, I really like foxes. You don't have to go like, and I want to fuck them. Uh, you don't have to go full furry on that. Um, just game out the situation. What do you lose if your parents cut off connection with you? How will you get by? decatastrophize. Find ways that you can make things as stable as possible in the worst case scenario, and then go from there. I think that you're having the right steps. You're thinking about things. You're reaching out to people. You're not trying to rush things. I would just highly recommend you don't kind of put all of your cards out on the table at once. Too much information overload tends to cause people to just shut down and just not want to have anything to do with it. So keep your parents tuned in. Don't tune them out. Good luck. Hopefully everything goes smoothly. You know, 
these kinds of situations, they can be a little bit iffy, but especially, you know, nowadays, I do find that and it's unfortunate, but a lot of the times people are worried about a lot of nothing. So, you know, just be careful, be safe, measure everything out, and hopefully everything turns out for, you know, the best that you want in your life. So we're going to move on and we're going to close out this episode. We've been running, you know, we want to aim for that hour, 30 minutes, and we're almost there. We're so close. Next week's a very special episode. We're going to have a guest on next week, and we're going to talk about something that everybody's been asking us to talk about. It's Pops and Handlers 101 with our special guest, Pop Powder. Pop Powder is um, involved in the pop and handler community within Vancouver. And he's going to talk about his experiences, give a little bit of an overview of the pop community and pretty much go through the basics that people have been asking. People are interested. Yeah. I'm looking totally for sure. So forward to this Vera, you um, hung out with him while you were at Vancouver. And yeah, he's actually a really great friend that I made while I was up in Vancouver. We clicked really well. We're kind of uh, dog bros at this point. So it'll be good to have him on to uh, discuss pup play more because he approaches his canine play slightly differently than I do. So it's kind of fun to hear another perspective on that. It'll be, it'll be a good, very good show, I think. So definitely tune in. And if you have questions, now is the time to ask them because this one is going to be a fun episode. If you want to ask a question about this, our contact page, fairlattraction.com slash contact. Anonymous questions. You can leave whatever information you want. If you want us to write you back, if you want to call us, there are so many ways to get into touch with us. So please check out our contact page. Also, while you're there, maybe consider leaving a rating for us on iTunes or on the Google Play Store. That also really helps us out. Ratings are good. Be honest. If we suck, tell us we suck. It's fine. I can take the criticism. I can take it. Give it to me hard. If you want to maybe make a financial contribution, we are on Patreon and we do have different tiers, one of which does allow for shout outs at the end of every episode. And we want to talk about snares for a second to longtime friend has his own Patreon for meteor showers, which is a crowdfunded, a crowdfunded comic. I always struggle with that. But if you're looking for a commission, Snares does fabulous commissions. Go to his Fur Affinity page, and his username is Furious, like the emotion. Maybe you're looking for something a little bit on the written side. If you're looking for furry and high-tech sci-fi, you might be interested in the Para-Imperium universe by Zarpolis. Uh, he's recently published a, a short novel with Thurston Hell Press that's titled The Pride of Parahumans. Uh, you can check that out on Amazon. And if you're just a fan of like speculative fiction, sci-fi, maybe even like Starcraft, you would probably enjoy his writing. Give it a check out. And if you enjoy it, consider his Patreon as well. Finally, if you're just looking for something a little bit more chill, a little bit more laid back, somebody to follow on Twitter, a new friend, Myron the Fluffy is there for you. Follow Myron at Myron the Fluffy for pictures and random daily panda, you know, red panda dog ramblings, all sorts of fun stuff that goes on there. So, you know, consider that if you're looking for a new friend on Twitter, we're going to close out the episode there. And if you have questions, get them to us as soon as possible. Next week, we're talking about pop play until then I'm Metrico.
And if you're the science colleague, <laughs> uh, I, I we'll have to do that a little bit right one more time. We talk about pop- I zoned out for a second. We talk My about, bad. We talk about pup play and Vero just ooh those hugs. I know, I know. I was I was zoning out for a second. That's fine. We all do. It. So I, we always fuck up the end of the show, so that's fine. You get a little blooper for all of you who actually waited that long. <laughs> so, oh my god, <laughs> I was doing so good, Vero. <laughs> You know, we, we you know, you know, there's actually this like mythology we have in laboratory science where sometimes you get really good lab results, you have to break some some laboratory equipment. So you know, you gotta you gotta fuck some things up occasionally in order to put out a good podcast. So yeah. it's important. So, but anywho, you know, we've broken our eggs. We're off for the day. We hate for anyone to think we were actually professionals at this, right? Oh God. <laughs> <sighs> well, screw it. We'll do it live. I'm Metrico. <laughs> and I'm Vera the Science Collie. Be well.